everyone. Welcome, Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital. Welcome to Medically Speaking. I apologize if we sound a little giggly, but I have with me one of my favorite physicians. So we were here fooling around before we came live on the air. And I'm hopeful that we bring that levity into our conversation tonight. Do you think we could do that, Doc? I think we can do that. Absolutely. So I have with me tonight Dr. Gregory Kladner. He is actually in charge of our sleep medicine department at St. Mary's Hospital. How long have you been with us, Doc? It's coming on 15 years. 15? This January will be 15. And we've been kind of attached at the hip for the last few years that I've been back at St. Mary's. Robin has kept me in line (laughs) for a long time, and I appreciate it. So just to give you a little history on Dr. Klagner, he is our medical director of our Sleep Disorder Center, um, and which provides full services with consultation and testing for adults and children, um, all sleep disorders, including sleep apnea, insomnia, schedule changes, snoring, narcolepsy are treated. At our sleep center. We have two locations, right, Doc? One um, right at the hospital? Correct. We built a new facility about two or three years ago across the street from the hospital in the medical office building. Brand new uh, beds and testing rooms and office. My old office. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'll tell you something. That medical office building, the 133 Scoville Street, which is our original ramp garage for St. Mary's, that building has become an incredible medical facility hub. We have everything in there now. You know, what used to be sparse and a few offices here and there, you are in the middle of a lot of activity. That's correct. Yeah, the the building looks a little weathered on the outside, but almost every office inside is new and new new equipment and and runs very well. And we're going to have a lot more parking soon because across the street from our ED where we took the hotel down, that's going to be a really big parking lot. That's what I hear. And yeah. parking's really not an issue anyway, because most patients are at at least my facility under two hours, and they're right. Parking is free of charge for right. that. Right for the for, and especially in the ramp garage, there definitely usually is parking in the ramp. Or we have valet in front of the hospital, which is great. And now too, um, we do utilize the lot behind St. Mary's for a lot of our doctors, which has freed up space for us in a lot of different locations. And that building, as I said, I cannot believe how many physicians are in there now. Dr. Albini's group um, just recently became part of Training Health of New England Medical Group. Correct. So now he's in that building with his team and brand new offices and we have our surgical team in there so there's a lot of activity in there that's right now you originally trained your undergrad was at yale right correct and then you went to john hopkins Mm -hmm. that's correct very prestigious thank you i must say thank you and we are very privileged to have you as one of our pulmonologists and part of our training health of new england team thank you in addition to the sleep lab you also cover our icu right Yes, we um, have a full uh, pulmonary critical care practice at St. Mary's where we cover uh, inpatient, outpatient pulmonary critical care. We have Dr. Barry leads the team along with Dr. Zhang and Dr. Osahan and yourself. Correct. And we're looking to grow that team, which is really exciting for us. Correct. And sleep is part of that. So your specialty is sleep. So why sleep? Why sleep? Because my wife likes to say I'm much better at cocktail parties. Because everybody, no, seriously, everybody has a sleep problem, Mm. right? Everybody has a sleep experience. Everybody needs to, has had good night's sleep, bad night's sleep, uh, time when they were a kid where they 
went to sleep and just got up right away, how right. sleep affects them during the day and night. And it's really important for all our health processes to get good sleep. And whether it's because of behavioral changes or because of sleep-disordered breathing, such as sleep apnea, uh, which can affect so many cardiovascular consequences, behavioral consequences, how you feel during the day, certification for commercial driving. We see a lot of patients who need to be screened for that. Um, Before they can actually get their license for it, right? Correct. Patients who are um, uh, considering bariatric programs, we make sure that their sleep is taken care of before we go into that kind of positive life changing. You you know what I love about our sleep disorder center is you you lead that team, but you are definitely such a leader in that field and you love to meet with each and every one of your patients. I know that puts patients out a bit sometimes and I know that you're overbooked like crazy, which you never see your family, but meeting with you and sitting down and talking to you, I know we're we're just talking about our upcoming Sparkle event. You're one of the people that all the women love to talk with because you are such a vast wealth of knowledge and we chose sleep this month because of the time change right right so this is the hard time change the full time change is the easier one this is the hard time i wanted to talk a little bit about that and before i move on i am going to challenge my audience because i challenged you two weeks ago so dr kalodner is one of my physicians that does not believe anybody listens to my show so we need to check i know <laughs> there's did. millions he of said listeners that nobody out there listens. so if you do have a question on sleep 203-757-1320 he will be very excited to entertain a question and i will never let him live it down but we started this month we're calling it sleep matters and there is the time change so in the beginning of the month, I had a nurse on um, from St. Francis, and they do a whole relaxation piece with um, patients as well as nursing staff and clinical staff to help them with relaxation so they get a better night's sleep, especially if you're a patient in the hospital. And then two weeks ago, we had on someone from Springfield who is a nurse practitioner that works with the sleep um, physician out there, the pulmonologist out there, and she did talk about all the different testing. And we all kind of touched on the time change. So how does it affect us? Why does the time change affect us? And it seems to last for a long time. Well, the time change affects us in two ways. First of all, there's a element of sleep deprivation. Because the clock goes forward an hour, we actually lose that hour of sleep. So there's that first part of it. And then because it is darker when we get up in the morning we lose the stimulation in the morning. So you're both sleep deprived and more in the dark. There's a lot of things in the lay press about what we really should do for daylight saving time, how we should go about it. I have some radical ideas, but they're too <laughs> radical for, for the, for too the radical radio. Too radical for the radio. Um, but, but, you know, there are some proposals to make daylight saving time permanent. Mm-hmm. So actually... Um, keep it permanent. A part of that problem is that if you if we kept daylight saving time permanent, kids would be going to school in December in the when the sun would rise about eight twenty in the wow. morning in December. That's so that's safe. That's not safe. With the so you can't and, yeah. you can't have both things. You either have it in the morning or in the afternoon. I actually think that that um, we should think about it not 
as a time change, but we should think about our society should evolve to having winter and summer hours for everything. Mm. Offices, businesses, going out. Where in the winter we would have kind of later or shorter days in the summer sort of long, right. longer days to sort of why do we have to why does everything have to be nine to five right so true. 52 weeks a year maybe we should consider sort of a societal change that way but that's that's obviously a complicated thing and very hard to legislate absolutely especially with the different types of occupations right so sometimes you can do that sometimes you can't so just depending on what you do as in healthcare we can't mm-hmm. change that right mm-hmm. so we have to have the hours that we have so I have found for myself this year the time changed harder than any other year. And I don't know if it was because we changed the timing of it, because we used to do it, I thought, in April or no. It hasn't just, changed for it several hasn't decades. Changed. Oh, yeah. So I'm just getting older, is what you're telling me. <laughs> is it harder as you get older? It's harder, but it's not harder. That's It's, it's a loaded question right. what you're asking. So what we know about how age and sleep deprivation change right is that when you are older it is easier for you to keep a regular schedule Mm -hmm. and it is easier to actually adapt to sleep deprivation than younger people Mm -hmm. younger people can make up sleep better but they don't do as well with sleep deprivation. So they did a classic experiment a couple of decades ago where they took people, let's say 25 and 50, I don't know the exact ages, but some were well under 40 and some were significantly over 40. And they, in sleep, we do vigilance testing. So you would do something that's repetitive that requires attention. So that measures sort of how you do. So it's either uh, watching something with intent or, you know, repeated math problems or something that requires some active brain. And they took people at baseline and then they had them only get five hours of sleep a night for two straight weeks. Hmm. So they were at baseline and then right. five hours of sleep a night for two straight weeks. So the t- at the baseline, the 25-year-olds did better than the 45-year-olds at the baseline. After the two weeks, everybody did worse, but the 45-year-olds were doing better than the 25-year-olds oh, at the end. Isn't that interesting? So that's wow. the uh, that's the take on it, that... that it's easier for older people to adapt, but it's harder for older people to make up sleep. Right. If you have a bad night or you stay out all night or you have a, a party and you go to bed late, a younger person can often sleep 10, 11, 12 hours. It's harder, very hard for an older person to do that unless they're I can't really sleep s- long hours. I, I have mm-hmm. the hardest time sleeping long mm-hmm. hours. And that's and, because our brain, our body clock and our brain yeah. is and more developed. Too, and yeah, and we're thinking too much, right? I, I do. That. I think it's biological. Yeah, yeah. We think more as we get older, but it really is biological. Is it really when you when you look at it? It's really not something that's. I don't feel like I need more than five or six hours. Like that's what I'm used to. Yeah, that's but that's not true. But it's. Not, I know. I probably need more. But They've, I. I. I don't seem to get. Here's that. the scary thing, bro. Yeah. Driving simulator tests. They do. Okay. Yeah. If you get five hours of sleep. Two weeks in a row. Yeah. It's the same as 
You do as well in the driving simulator as if you've been up 24 hours straight. That's not good. And you do as well as if you've had a few drinks. Oh, my so, gosh. So I need to get more sleep is so, what yep. you're telling me. So then let's go with that because I, you know, I do want to talk more about sleep apnea and that. But you're such a wealth of knowledge that I love. Well, I do. I love going down different roads with you because it's a lot of fun and you just... Well, he's one of the physicians, so my audience knows that I never even have to prep for it. It just comes. He said to me when we got here, what are we going to talk about? I said, "Mm, it's just going to flow because you have so much knowledge in there. So, Well, we both like to talk. We do like to talk. Yes, we do. So let's talk about what good sleep is. What do you consider good sleep? So how many hours should individuals be getting? And yes, we can look at the different age ranges, but what is... is Right. Most individuals over 30 to 35, the average U.S. recommendation is seven to seven and a half hours per night. But it's it's a distribution. You know, I can measure your cholesterol. I can measure your potassium. I can measure your sugar, even your A1C, even your thyroid hormone. I can't measure any value that tells me how much sleep you need versus Mm -hmm. your significant other or your family or your, excuse me, next door neighbor. Right. You need enough sleep that your performance later in the day, your your um, ability to get up in the morning is not, you're not hitting the snooze button for a right. long period of time. Right. It's all about how your body reacts to the sleep. And so some people are just luckier than others that they really don't need sleep. You know, when they looked at journals before electric lights, people used to sleep nine, ten hours in the winter easily, or they would sleep in two shifts. They actually would sleep from sunset for about four or five hours, get up in the middle of the night, and go back to sleep. And that's a question. Is it going to be interrupted, or does it have to be uninterrupted to count? Well, it has to be of good quality. It's okay. obviously better to be uninterrupted, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's still good quality. Older people, for instance, often will nap in the afternoon, right. and they just have to realize that that they don't need as much sleep at night if they take a if they take a snooze afternoon nap. Right. And the way I ask an older person about their napping is, it's the napping is fine, but if you have a do- if you have an emergency doctor's appointment or a function at two o'clock, can you skip your nap and still be just as productive? As long as they can, then then I feel that that nap is is okay. If they really stop doing afternoon chores, then they have a sleep problem of some sort. Right. We um, I find and I and I hear this with other people too that at nighttime, when you come home and you finally get everything done after your busy day, right? You sit down and there's a point, and it seems for me, and I know for some of my friends too, there seems to be a particular time that my body shuts down. And it's usually right at 9.15, and I snooze for 15 minutes, and I can't believe I fell asleep, but I do. I fall asleep really into, and it's almost like the deepest sleep and the best sleep, but then I wake up and I feel good for a couple of hours. What yeah. causes you to do well, that? Well, some of that is is what you're saying. You're you're chronically sleep deprived, so you have that. <laughs> get on the couch, watch the movie, and what happens? It's usually General Hospital, but uh, okay. I wake up General and then I have Hospital. to rewind it again. <laughs> okay, is yeah, that you on know Netflix? My secret. No, I, I tape it every night. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, 
I know. I it's, throw him it's off. Just because of the, it's just because of the chronic sleep deprivation yeah. that you have a little bit, that yeah. you're just getting a second wind. You're getting... I do. I little. get that second wind. I'm like, I, I force myself to stay up. And I know that's mm-hmm. not good. But if I did go to bed, I know that I'm only going to make it till 2 o'clock. And then I'm up for an hour. Right. Right. But you have to, you have to balance where your uh, true sleep pattern should right. be. And that's hard. We can. That's we can. It's we can, hard. We can book you. You for can an book me. Oh no! I don't want to do it. So that brings me to my next question: What leads someone to come and get an evaluation by your team? Well, I think that you have to look at the sources of information for sleep because there are good sources of information and we're not trying to say don't come to the doctor and just look online for everything but I think there's a couple of red flags that you have to look at so someone with heart disease Mm -hmm. or blood pressure or has a high risk of stroke Mm -hmm. needs to know about sleep disordered breathing right someone who cannot do the normal things during the day because of sleepiness, because it's, if it's interfering with your life. if There's a difference between, oh, I wish I was a little more rested right. versus I'm not doing this because I'm exhausted. Mm-hmm. And then that's, it's, it's always important to you know, have your primary care physician, make sure that everything's screened right. and normal with all your other medical problems. Right. Someone who does weird what we like to call weird behaviors, which we use the word parasomnias at night, you know, acting out your dreams or sleepwalking or unusual movements. Um, Any bed partner that's bothered by someone's stopping breathing or snoring, but a lot of sleep apnea isn't detected by the the spouse. Someone who has uh, heart disease and is should be otherwise healthy. We see a lot of people with new atrial fibrillation, which is an arrhythmia of the top portion of the heart. And those people should have normal, when they go to the cardiologist, all the heart tests look good, except the heart isn't beating correctly. Some of those people have sleep apnea that needs to be treated. And they've just snored all their life and And it's put stress on their heart. And it's important to know about. So the snoring puts stress on the heart. What happens is snoring by itself doesn't necessarily put stress on the heart, but when you are the muscle in the back of your throat closes down. Okay. It is almost like breathing through a straw in that you have to use more force in your chest and th- when it closes down enough that it cuts off oxygen, then your heart starts getting under stress. And even though it's a little bit only for a few seconds and then it relieves it, doing this multiple times every night for years and years and years puts cumulative stress on the cardiovascular system and can lead to things like this in certain people, just like everything else. So when, how do you tell the difference in snoring, especially within your partner, because we usually notice it with our partners. So how do you tell the difference between what is more caused by your upper respiratory, you know, or, or 
anything to do with your sinuses or, you know, a lot of people have that versus something else. Is there a difference? It's really hard to make that distinction. What we say is is snoring plus something else. Mm. So snoring plus I can't control my high blood pressure. I have atrial fibrillation. I am not feeling rested. Mm -hmm. I am waking up with such a dry mouth that I know something's wrong. I'm a young person, but I'm going to the bathroom three times during the night. I'm worried about driving more than 20 or 30 minutes because I might fall asleep because I can't concentrate when right. I'm in right. the car. Right. You know, things like that. What are the first, what happens first? So when, when a patient's been referred to you, by, usually it's from one of the primary care providers, right? They identify some of these warning signs. Correct. And do you have a, is there a, um, I know I've t- talked to some of the other um, regions and we have a check, they have checklists. Do we have the checklist? And It's sort of a, it's sort of a checklist. One of the screening tests that, that um, the anesthesiologists do for sleep apnea is something called a stop-bang questionnaire where they basically look at eight questions. They ask the person four questions, which is the stop part, and then the bang part is based on some biological parameters. And I won't go through it. You can look look into it, but they look at that number. That's a screening type of test. But if you're referred to our department, we make an assessment based on the primary care's information or the referring provider's information as to whether the patient should see me or Dr. Berry, who also provides sleep care first, or we feel there's enough information to warrant sleep testing first and then follow up. So we look at that, and then we recommend based on the information that we're giving, we get the insurance authorization if, right. for whatever test we need. That we need you can know. always, if you're not sure, you can always come see us first. I mean, that's not right. a... For a consultation. Of course. Right. And we always review everything ourselves, and we try to follow up with every patient directly to tell them about how they're doing and and what the results of the sleep testing is. There are two types of sleep testing. Right. For... There's a home sleep test for breathing, right. which tells us about breathing and sleep apnea. That's for adults only. You have to be relatively healthy in the sense that no heart disease, no lung disease, able to understand instructions. Right. But it's a breathing test that you take a monitor home with, and you can sleep in your own bed at the own, at your own time. Uh, you need about five or six hours of um, recording data. You, it, you pick up a device at our office and bring it back the next day. And it tells us about breathing. It doesn't tell us about the other elements of sleep. And then there's the traditional sleep test in our facility, which is like a hotel room in a real bed. It's beautiful. It has neurologic. Beautiful. It has neurologic parameters, so we put some uh, wires attached by little uh, paste and electrodes on your head and other parts of your body, and we measure all our parameters. So Right, so it looks at everything. Correct. So it looks at everything. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to break down those two tests just a little yep. bit more to talk about the differences. Mm-hmm. Be right back. 
Welcome back, everyone. Robin Sills from St. Mary's Hospital, Medically Speaking. And our topic is still this month, sleep matters, because it does matter. I know it matters to all of us. And we have our medical director of our sleep center, Dr. Greg Kladner. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Hi. He and a pulmonologist with us for the last 15 years, part of the Training Health of New England Medical Group. And Dr. Kladner and I were just talking about the different types of testing. And I know we've talked about it before, and there's been a lot out with the home study tests because insurances will pay for that first most times, right? It, it depends on the situation. Hmm. The tests are slightly different, but they're not meant to be complementary to, to each other. Okay. Most, of, most people, a very high majority of people, only need one test or the other. Oh. There, it's not that the home test is designed to be a precursor or a screening test for an in-lab test. I find that the patients who get the home test, because we do them so well, we have well-trained people to do them, we know who's appropriate for them and who's not, that... Only about 5% of our patients who do home tests, we don't get the information that we need and we think about doing a, a, full test. a full test. Sometimes people have to do the home test a second time in the sense that there's a problem with how the device was placed on or applied and we don't get the data. Okay, That is not a second even though it's a second night for the patient, it's not a second charge. It's charge. still just the fir- the one test. And because we're getting one piece of information, it's a little bit annoying for someone to have to do it again, but it it works pretty well. So and, who's appropriate for that test? Well, so again, the first home test is for someone who does not have heart or lung disease, who is an adult, who can understand instructions, who does not use oxygen at home, who does not have things like high blood pressure in the lungs, which is called pulmonary hypertension or a recent stroke or a bad cardiac arrhythmia, because we're really just asking the question, does this person have sleep apnea or not, and how much? It's a diagnostic test only, so if we're looking at the effectiveness of therapy, we're not really looking at that either. But it has the advantage of being easier for the patient. The The in-lab test is a complete survey of all types of sleep medicine, including video, what we do from a sleep pattern, so what we call the, the hypnogram, which is sort of the way your sleep is built in, right. in structure of stages. We look at subtle changes in how your breathing is. If you need therapy and we need to see how positive pressure therapy, which is either CPAP or BiPAP, right. depending on the condition, uh, works for children because of how hard it is for children to keep monitors on appropriately and because children have much finer changes in their breathing than adults do. The home sleep test only detects larger swings in right. oxygen level and breathing that we can't find in children. So when you do the sleep test that is the home study test and you've identified the right person, as you just mentioned, that would utilize that test, once they come back, what are you looking for on that test? So we're usually answering the question, does the person have sleep apnea or not? And if they do, then we look at treatment options if it's appropriate for them. Okay. For some people, it's 
a lifestyle change. Mm-hmm. Sleep apnea is somewhat weight related in most people. Mm-hmm. 90% of people with sleep apnea are overweight to some degree mm-hmm. in the sense that bringing weight down by any method would improve. Would their blood pressure, their Correct. Diet, everything. So if their sleep apnea is only mildly abnormal, sometimes we try lifestyle changes first, especially if they don't have a lot of symptoms. If their sleep apnea is more severe, we worry about long-term consequences and also how it's affecting them because lifestyle changes take longer to see an effect from. We sometimes will treat patients. The most common treatment is using a positive pressure breathing machine like a CPAP, which is CPAP continuous positive airway pressure and that is what people mistakenly refer to it as as the mask mask. but what it really is is um, airflow to hold the airway open in the last year there have been a lot of really nice looking new masks that don't even cover hardly any portion of the face where the tubing that's attached to the machine actually goes above the person's head so they Do really I have, have a lot more <laughs> flexibility in 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 bed and the plastics have gotten better. Yeah. And we also get feedback data from the machines and now all the new machines people can track how they're doing themselves. Wow. An app comes with the the machine if they need it and they can check their own stats. They actually get a score each night of zero to a hundred of how wow. their sleep is with the machine so it helps their their feedback. You know, it's I don't think I think we take sleep for granted in regards to its effects on our health. Right. Yes. And I, I really do. And I think that there's so many things that sleep help. And I think we as a society and I mean I'm speaking for myself, we feel lazy to get too much sleep like we're not as productive as we should be and I think that that has hurt us over the years so people are not sleeping the way they should because they feel like they're wasting time right well it's a non-logical thing when we're hungry our body gives us that signal to eat when we're thirsty we drink water when we need to stretch or we feel a pain in our side we know to to respond to that when we start yawning when we feel like we have to go to sleep it's not right it's the same kind of signal i know for myself on you know on a weekend i'm like i am gonna sleep in tomorrow morning being a saturday and by seven o'clock i'm losing my mind i'm like i gotta throw the laundry in i could do this i could do that i've just wasted an hour where i could have been productive and getting things done but what's the point when my body probably really needed that rest? And I think we do that for ourselves. We don't give ourselves that luxury, Well, which over time can have health health. So risks. I'm, I'm going to talk to the administration. We'll get Robin Sills, a personal assistant at home, <laughs> yeah, to do the laundry. Yeah, I don't know about that. That so would that be great. Sleep. So I can get some more sleep, right? Oh, It's so true, though. I think that we do that. Now, when someone goes for the full sleep test... Correct. Isn't it harder for them to get a good night's sleep away from home? And again, that's part of the decision in what kind of sleep test we do. Because the in-lab sleep test is much more informative in someone who's sleep deprived. Because someone will be able to sleep through those conditions. It's pretty remarkable how... Many people feel like they won't be able to get a good night's sleep, and we do actually get 
sufficient data. The sleep is not perfect. You are in a unusual place, and we do have some monitors on you, and there are people outside, even right. though they're quiet. There's the technologist outside right. monitoring it's like you. like being in a hospital, right? Oh, it's much less. Well, it's much nicer. It's much yeah, quieter it looks like than a being hotel in the It's like a hotel No room one's coming in and taking your blood, blood pressure. pressure. Right. <laughs> so that's true, but you're just aware that you're somewhere else. Uh, yes, but it's not... It's not, it's not, I, I wouldn't even go anywhere close to the hospital. No, because it is like a hotel room. I do, I have seen it, because like I said, it's one of my old offices, so the whole area is just beautiful. Now, I, you just yelled at me for a TV, so they can't watch a TV to help them fall asleep. We, we actually do have TVs just while they're setting up. We ask them to turn the TV off at a certain point so they can get to sleep, and that's really... The structure of the room. Since right. you only have one room, that's where the right. the TV would be. But it's recommended that people, you know, don't have distractions when they try to go to sleep. Sleep is a behavior that is completely passive, right? We can't will our, we can will ourselves to get up and exercise if we so desire. We can right. will ourselves to eat. We can will ourselves to drive the car to go to work. You can't make yourself go to sleep. No, sleep is the absence of consciousness so you, you no can't control. make yourself yeah there's no control and so reducing stimulation is the key and reducing stimulation within half an hour hour before to bed is the best it's so way to- important sorry johnny i'm sitting sideways here talking to doc so we Wake talked up, a little i know we talked a little bit about children and it's so hard because we have a set bedtime we want our kids to go to bed right go to bed you have school tomorrow everybody go to bed but the kids are on their computers they're on their phones they're on all these different devices that keep them very stimulated how do we help our children to get a good night's sleep and when do you see kids who what type of children do you see with well, sleep most apnea? most children with sleep apnea it's because of large tonsils or large adenoids oh. and because there's a lot of data on whether we should be taking those out in children. A lot of times we do sleep testing because we w- we want to make sure that they don't need surgery. Uh. It's often the opposite that we want to make sure because a child may snore, we want to make sure that they're not so severe that it's affecting learning or memory. A child who's doing well during the day who just snores and sleeps well and doesn't have problems in school may not even if they have big tonsils, they may not need They may be okay them removed right. because you know, the the data is going back and forth on whether it's a good thing to right. to do that to remove tonsils unless there's another reason obviously a child who is having struggling in school staying um, awake or focusing or behavioral issues mm-hmm. it's important to make sure that it's not from bad sleep from bad sleep at night correct we talk, I just mentioned a little bit about the stimulation. I know you you frown upon that extra stimulation. You do it yourself, as you admit. Well, we're 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 as adults, we need to have set examples for our children. Right. Whether it's a TV in the bedroom, whether it's using our screens at night, mm-hmm. you know, it's becoming a status symbol among the the wealthy to use less screens now it used to be that the 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 wealthy got their 
the biggest phones and right. doing that. Now it's like we want to detach from phones. Yeah. And, Everybody and, put their phone in the basket. And screens and all that. Right. And it's probably a good thing for us as a society to do that. For kids, know. it's so hard. I just they're they're so into their screens. I mean, if you go to a restaurant, it's the only way the parents keep the kids occupied is on these new. Well, I think you have to look really. at the at the age group and and all that, and that's just examples. That's just parenting. Like right. any right. any changes, I don't think we should m- make such too much of a broad brush. Or no, but I can tell that. you, it works when I go to a restaurant with my grandchildren for sure. I know that I'm just as guilty of it. But because they know they grandma's going to spoil. Yeah, right? absolutely. But then when we go home, then it's the point of when do you shut the kids down, and what do you do? What do you do in your own home? Well, my daughter is is 17, and she's good at shutting down, but she knows that I'm the sleep doctor, and that sleep <laughs> is very important right. to her. I've, I've encouraged her as a teenager to do napping. I've encouraged her to um, work with exercising. She does not have a TV in her room. She does have screens, but she's right. good at turning off her phone after a certain time now. And Yeah. That's so and it's, important. It's very important for her. We've talked in the past, and I I don't want tonight to go by without mentioning it again, but talking about the light box. You're a big proponent of what's called the light box. Can yes, we talk? The light can box. we say what it is? So well, the best light box is the thing up in the sky. That's, the sun. We haven't seen a lot. No, but we're right. seeing more of, more of in now. March. It's it is New England. In right, the, we're getting there. In March, but um, while obviously it's important with sun exposure on our eyes and our skin. We want to make sure we use sunscreen and we want to make sure we protect our eyes. It's not, uh, we don't want to forget about that, is that visible light is the most important trigger of all our biologic functions. And it's not the ultraviolet that causes the skin and, and eye problems. So artificial light can trigger the same kind of things that sunlight can, both for seasonal depression and for regulating the body clock as the sun does without the side effects of the ultraviolet that's in the in the sun. And so there are devices now that are basically the size of tablets that are portable. They used to be these huge clunky lights the size of the old TVs with tubes, you yep. know, when we used to have those yep. heavy monstrous TVs. But now they're they're really with the LED technology, they're tablet size. And what you do is try to keep a regular wake time, seven days a week, and then within the first hour try to get fifteen minutes or more of light exposure at about eighteen to twenty four inches away from the the light. So you put the light up like you would another kind of screen or a laptop or something like that and you just let it be the source of a high intensity light it's usually much brighter than anything you could get through a picture window or a room light and it's a little bit harsh because it's waking you up but it gives your body a signal to know that this is outdoors like i like to say 150 years ago people spent all day outdoors and then they spent all night indoors and their brain knew when it was supposed to be awake and when it was supposed to be asleep and it helped insomnia and and stability of all our circadian rhythms. So how do you personally use the light box? How do you incorporate well, that? Well, it depends into- on the time of year. I usually start in the fall time. We 
we have to remember that it's almost darker in September and October right. sometimes than it is in February, especially in the morning. And trying to use it as many mornings as possible. I drink coffee. I'm not against drinking coffee Good. as a sleep doctor. It's um, <laughs> important. Everybody is, that's a long discussion that we could go into. But having a little coffee in the morning is okay. Unless you have really bad insomnia and then you should think about cutting it out. But I usually eat something or or if I'm looking at the news or something, I can drink the coffee, have the light box in front of me for about 10, 15 minutes and do that. People can even do it at work if they're someone who gets out really quickly and they have a they get right to their work desk very quickly. Mm. Um, they can even do it then within you know, if it's within a, an hour or so of when they when they get up. And some of us work in offices that have no windows. Correct. So I could see where that would be incredibly even, important. Even with windows. And the fluorescent light that a lot of commercial properties right. have is not really conducive to that. It's a very flat light, as you, right. as you know. Absolutely. I mean, it's designed to be sort of neutral so it's not too buzzy and stimulating and it's low energy to save energy. But right. it can also mask that you know one of the problems in in hospitals across the country is there's the lights the same 24 hours a day we right. see that is you don't even know if it's day or night correct we have no idea if it's day or night in those middle hallways especially unless you're on the top floors like o'brien eight and o'brien seven those those floors are, are surrounded by glass so it's much better but what but yeah on the other floors it's tougher when you're in the in inner core of the hospital, mm-hmm. it's really hard. I know my office is in one of the oldest parts of the hospital in the Slocum building. I happen to be in the old office where the old maternity delivery room was, and it's dark. It's really dark, you know, and you're not surrounded by glass. So it's hard to tell what the weather is, and we have buildings all around us. It's, it's like that, I'm sure, for people that live in the city, too. Like New York, I, we just visited my son in Philly, and it was like that. For yeah, a lot it, can of be, it can be like that in the in the in the city. Um, <laughs> it's it's a challenge for for you know those people. They, I mean, cities you have the advantage that you walk more, so there are other right. advantages with that, and you right. tend to commute outside. You know, we have the problem in Connecticut that we don't walk enough, and we right. drive almost everywhere, and, right. and we have that issue. But it's, but um, so you have to. It's so true. Balance we were things. we were in Philly this weekend, and my my son and daughter in law bought their first home, and it's a row house. But there's parts of the house that are really dark towards the back because they they bought somewhat of an alley. But then the front of the house is more open, so it was brighter. And our bedroom was in the front of the house, and they were sleeping in the back of the house, and they had a hard time waking up because it was really really dark. It was really, really dark. So your body does adjust as the light comes in is when you start to wake up. And the light box, can you set the light box up on a timer? Well, the light box is designed to be on when you're awake. Only so it's not awake. a it's not an alarm clock. Doesn't wake you up. A wake-up light can make it easier for you to transition. Right. They do sell things that sort of gradually... But that's not the stimulation that you need. You need that stimulation after you're awake. You need the pulse of light. The pulse of light. And it's not, it shouldn't be used other times during the day. Right. Just to get you going, to help you adjust and start your day. And it's a cumulative effect so that it may not help that day or even that week, but it's a long, it helps. In a long term. 
Correct. You mentioned something about your daughter. You said something about exercise. So we talked. You talked a little bit about for those sleep apnea patients that are not severe, some lifestyle changes like losing weight. Where does exercise play in that role? Well, exercise any time during the day, mm-hmm. exercise decreases how long it takes for you to go to sleep as long as it's done not within two hours of bed. Mm-hmm. It increases the amount of deep sleep that you have and it improves sleep duration. So any amount of aerobic exercise during the day. And we think that's because it helps muscle recovery, you know, right. that the body's actually asking for more um, sleep. It also helps reduce the stress of the day. You know, you have the, that ability to work things out, work the energy out. Yeah, definitely. You know, we we talk a lot about relaxation and relaxation techniques. And someone that I had on earlier in the month, that's what they talked about. When patient, when she talked about um, patients in the hospital, how their sleep is definitely compromised. It's a much different sleep. And that's when they need it the most, when they have the ability to heal. So they did some relaxation techniques. How do... How can we help our patients in the hospital, or how can a patient in the hospital get better sleep? I think it's I think it's a challenge. Yeah. I think it's an institutional challenge. We have to look at our systems, um, sort of globally for that, and how we do charting, and how we do um, uh, the way we coordinate our services among groups. The care we they've give actually we looked at studies in non-completely alert patients, so this doesn't completely apply to sleep versus wake. It more right. applies to coma versus wake. Okay. But the thing that stimulated the patients the most in the hospital was not people moving, was not the beeping of instruments, was not even the light. It was other humans talking. Mm. So it's very important as a hospital providers, support staff, everybody, to do as much talking away from the patient, if it's not to the patient directly, of course, if it's not a medically necessary thing. So if um, nurses are giving report to each other or there's a discussion going on or a a questioning, as much of that that can be done outside the patient's room, outside of earshot, you know, maybe designing ways where it's it's harder to, for patients to hear those kind of things. Right. It's always wake, helpful. And waking them up for their vitals is always a big thing. Well, yeah. You know, we go in there and we wake them up for their vitals. And I, I, I know we need to check on the patients, but it is. It's a disruption in their sleep. And I know for myself personally, any disruption like that throws your body totally off and you have to really then you start thinking your mind starts going and you need to get yourself readjusted to, to go back to sleep. That's all. Correct, and we just have to work at it. As we a, have to work at as it as an institution. institution. So I know we only have a couple of minutes left. So what I'd like to just kind of recap is: when should someone be concerned? When do you think someone should have that conversation with their primary care physician? Again, sleepiness that's affecting their ability to function during the day, heart problems, or or major medical problems that we worry about. being affected by sleep, right. any observation of poor breathing during mm-hmm. sleep, and and commercial driving. That's a big one. 
<coughs> Excuse me. And anything that prevents you from getting to sparkle. For- <laughs> so now that you threw that out there, we want to tell everyone that our annual Sparkle event will be happening May 8th. The Sparkle event is one of our biggest signature events for Spirit of Women. And Dr. Kladner will be there in his full glory, talking to everyone about sleep. And yours is the busiest table. Well, as I said, everybody has a sleep problem. Not everybody has a heart problem. I think it's your charisma that brings the women to your table to talk to you. What okay. Oh, you'll go with that? I, I you will take go with that? the fifth on that. <laughs> but we do have a full um, array of physicians that join us that night. And Sparkle's a great night. It is a great night. We are definitely going to change things up a little bit again this year. We like to keep it fresh always, but we will put there is information early sign up on our website. If you go on stmh.org and you click on Spirit of Women, it will bring you right to our website and you can definitely sign up for our Sparkle event, which is May 8th at the AquaTurf. Dr. Kladner, along with all of our Training Health of New England Medical Group, a lot of physicians will be there. We usually have around 40 of us, 40 physicians that participate. And we have community providers that are part of our our team that join us. So we're excited to have you there with yeah, us again. Yeah, it's a really, I learn a lot at Sparkle too. I see a lot of the uh, affiliated right. um, vendors and affiliated practices that may not be directly part of St. Right. Mary's, but are important to our Waterbury community. Definitely. And, and that's what it's about. It's, it's about knowing what we have in this community and being able to know, women know that they don't need to leave Waterbury for their care, that we are full service. And we're also going to be promoting, just so you know, we have a lot of female providers. There's going to be a lot of female providers. I believe we have over 45 female providers, not just primary care, but a variety of female providers in every uh, discipline. So we're very excited to promote that. Well, Dr. Claudia, thank you again for coming tonight. I want to give everybody his information. So our sleep disorder center is at 133 Scoville Street, Suite 104. The main phone number is 203-709-4504. And Dr. Kladner, one day a week you're out in Wilkett? We see patients in Wilkett on most Wednesdays, but we do testing in both locations Seven days a week. Seven days a week you do testing. And the Wolcott location is uh, 503 Wolcott Road um, in our uh, medical office building there along with um, our primary care group, uh, Dr. Pruner and his team and Dr. Giacomazzi and his team. Correct. That's it. Wolcott Wolcott Road and the corner of Patuxus Ring Road. Look at that. You even knew the little corner, which flooded during the winter. With a water main break. That was Dr. Pawtucket's way. Nothing happened nothing anymore. Nothing happened to the building. And we also have urgent care there. So thank you again tonight for joining us again. If you want to know more, stmh.org. Have a great weekend.